Hello and welcome along to the World Game Live. It's fantastic to have your company this Wednesday, the 10th of March. I'm your host, Lucy Zellich, and joining me from his home here in uh, in Sydney from his wonderful apartment is my co-host, Nick Stoll, a.k.a. Stolich. Great to see you, Stolich. How are you, my friend? Good, good. I like you saying wonderful apartment. You're like a real estate agent. Maybe you're trying to trying to sell it. Hey, we're, we're back in the market again, so I'm starting to get used to observing people's properties with great respect. But speaking of which, uh, great respect is being directed towards this wonderful man who we've all been so excited to see arrive on Australian shores since all of the hype has built up around him. Welcome to our program, our very special guest, Newcastle Jets attacking midfielder Liridon Krasnice. Welcome to you, Liridon. Thank you for stopping by and making the time for us here at the World Game Live. We've already had a host of questions coming through from a number of our fans but the one that I have to ask you is this. How are you finding Australia? And specifically, how are you settling in to Newcastle? First of all, uh, hi, Lucy. Hi, Nick. Nice uh, to meet you guys. Um, hoping you have a great day. Uh, yeah, um, I adapt very fast. Um, like, um, to be honest, uh, Australia is a beautiful country. And I just knew it from my previous teammates. They weren't telling me a lot about it. And like I'm, I'm, I'm good, feeling well, and everything is going so far good. Now just waiting for my debut, and yeah. And we're looking so forward to seeing you make your debut. Of course, as I mentioned there, there's been so much hype and discussion around you arriving here. People that have played against you, former teammates have come out all in support of you and the, and the exciting style of football that you're going to bring here. Some of them calling you very flashy, uh, very tricky with the ball, technically very good. But how far away are we from seeing you make your debut? I know that your coach, Craig Dean, said that you hadn't played in about three or four months and they're taking a more ca cautious approach with you and getting you fit for, for starting 11 football but how close are we seeing you to seeing you uh, uh, to be honest like um, I'm feeling very very well um, feeling good and of course with this quarantine thing and stuff like you get us very fast out of the rhythm and stuff but uh, we're training so good with the coaches with the staff like um, with the team and I'm into and um, it's just up to the coaches now and um, they're gonna make the decisions and uh, like from my side of course I'm ready and and I would be happy to make as soon as possible my debut so and yeah that's the actual status right now. Mm -hmm. Stolich over to you. Yeah Liridin I wanted to ask what did you know about Australia what did you know about the A-League and Newcastle when you you know found out I don't know if your agent or whoever told you from the club that Newcastle wanted to sign you. What was your kind of initial kind of thoughts about the A-League Australia life here, what it was going to be like? Uh, to be honest, uh, like Australia would be the last country I've ever like, been expected to play for because not because I don't want to or because I don't see myself here. It's just like, it just seems so far from everything, you know, like I'm from Europe. <laughs> And yeah. I didn't expect that, that I'm going to land here. Like, all Malaysia was already, like, so far from home. Mm. But I like the like, for five years and had, like, one of my best times ever. And um, I've been just hearing from my teammates and, like, overall, like, seeing, like, um, from the TV and stuff that this is a very beautiful country. And um, I didn't have that knowledge a lot about Australia until I meet those friends who I've been playing with, like um, Zach Anderson, Shane Smeltz, Matthew Davis, and another a, a lot of other players who are playing in Malaysia still. And I just can't tell, like, uh, they're, like, great guys. And 
great lads, good teammates, and um, I get like now uh, the opportunity to meet Australia by myself in person. So far, I'm very, very um, uh, have a positive view of it, and I really, really love it. What have been, littered on your impressions of the A-League overall and the quality of football that you've seen? I mean, I know that it's not exactly the best season for Newcastle Jets at the moment. That's why getting you fit and ready is going to be hugely crucial to the remainder of their season. But what do you think about the quality of Australian football? What have been your first impressions? Um, like, I have to say that the quality of uh, the A-League is quite very, very good, tough and... Um, I can see a lot of great, good players, good teams, and um, I can see that every club can beat every club. So uh, that's 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 uh, something where you can't see in every league. So um, I'm very excited, and um, so far I can see it's a very, very good league. You've come to us on loan, and I think from my understanding, your contract with your current club ends uh, June this year. What are your plans beyond that? Are you hoping to return back to Malaysia? What do you mean June? Like I have like till uh, I have like almost like two more years contract with. Oh, Malaysia. you've got two more years. Sorry, I misread that. I saw in the in the media there that you had until June this year. But well, obviously June this year with us here in Australia. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Here with us until June. Um, are your plans to think about going back to Malaysia, or are you hoping to see how things work out here in Australia before you consider what your next move is? Um, like I am here, my full focus is uh, with Newcastle, and like I'm here with my soul, with everything right now. There is nothing else I'm thinking about it, because that's why I came here. Um, of course, you're on loan. You're still connected or like like still connected to different club to your previous club for example but right now i'm here and i see myself here and the only target is for me uh personally that um i'm gonna try to give my best and let's see how things work out as you said lucy and then we're gonna make a decision and then end of june july whenever yeah then we'll see Stolich? Yeah, Liridan, have you had a chance to watch many of the Newcastle's games this season? Because uh, I think, you know, they're, they're 11th, they're second bottom on the table, but I think actually they've been better than 11th. I think they've created a lot of chances, defended well in a lot of games. W what do you think is not quite clicking right at the moment? There's something just, I guess, missing a little bit um, from the team so far. What are your initial thoughts on the Jets' season at the moment? Uh, to be honest, the moment when I get like in in touch with the Jets it was like after the third or fourth game. Since then, I've been watching all the games um, of the Jets, like uh, before I came here and while I like the last three games. And the team is um, we have a good style of playing football. We have good players, and of course, you get like unlucky, unlucky games, like uh, for example. Lucky goals, but that's how it is in this, like especially in this season. You can see every club like up, down, up, down, fourth, mm. sixth, eleventh, like. And yeah, we just have looking forward to, to keep going and um, uh, like to win games. Um, 
and uh, to try to give our best, you know. Hassan Bertan, good afternoon to you via Facebook and to all of our viewers tuning in today on the World Game Live with our very special guest here, Newcastle Jets, attacking midfielder Liridon Krasniche. Hassan Bertan writes, hi Liridon, can't wait to see you on the pitch. Mike Long, one of our top viewers on the World Game Live, says they need Liridon and they will light up. A question coming via Twitter from John Kazanaki, I hope I'm saying that correctly, John Kazanaki. He's asking, Liridon, what do you hope specifically to bring to this Newcastle Jets side and what can we expect from you? Uh, I don't know how the expectations are and I don't know what uh, people are expecting. Uh, whatever. Big things, Liridon. We're expecting big things from you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, like... Uh, as I can tell, I'm gonna. Uh, the most important expectations for me are what uh, my team needs, what my coaches need, and those expectations I'm gonna try to fill up with everything I have. And as you mentioned, uh, my my style of football is maybe not. Uh, it's maybe not, probably not a, a thing, or it's not something people have seen or gonna see or whatever. But I have my own style, and I think people's gonna like it as well and it's gonna fit the team as well and that's my opinion and as soon as i'm like um, i get in the rhythm i get in like 150 percent shape i'm think uh, uh, and i'm hopefully uh, can help the team with um, uh, something much more much more better because it's always good if somebody comes in, into a team and brings a new thing in that's what teams about is it about you know and uh, this is my target and I'm looking forward to to fill those things up. We're looking forward to seeing it. Also, Liridon, one of the things that the fans were talking a lot about on social media was just how stylish of a man that you are, very into your fashion, always very well dressed, taking care of yourself. But of course, in the media, you're you know you're no stranger to there being a few headlines. And we did see something that caught our eye, in which it linked you to Kim Kardashian's friend Larsa Pippen. Can you give us any insight into that? Um, first of all, like um, because you mentioned like um, dressing up and stuff, like I think like you always like feel how you dress. So this of the day, like I like to wear good, good clothes to feel good, and that's my thing. You know, like it's just like I am. I love fashion, and um, we'll just live once. So I think we have to enjoy it. We have a nice life. We're healthy, and yeah. And to the other question, Lucy, um, yes, I've been like, it's been a lot like uh, in the media, like special back home. And uh, I'm with Larsa, like we, we, we are very good friends and um, it's like a private thing. Like I really like uh, don't want to talk too much about it, but uh, because you asked me and... Um, <laughs> Like we we are just good friends. Like overall, we good friends. Uh, we get good alone, um, and uh, that's that's all I can say for now. And of course, people are gonna pick their own things up from the media, connect things, try to build up because that's how the media works. But uh, I'm gonna keep it like still secret, private because it's a private thing, and uh, that's all you can get from for now, Lucy. 
<laughs> That's okay. We're in the media. We make our own assumptions, mm. as you said. One last question from you, Stolich, before we say goodbye to the great Liridon. Okay, Liridon, you're a talented footballer, but actually what you also are is a talented linguist. And you were telling us just before that you speak six languages. Uh, we here at SBS, we are the kind of multicultural broadcaster, so we're always interested in people who can speak so many languages. Tell us the six languages that you speak and how you learned to speak them all. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, I get like very fast languages. Like I'm into, uh, I like also to to study uh, languages. Uh, yeah, I speak Albanian, uh, my mother language, German, uh, English. Uh, I get a bit of Croatian, like I can understand a lot of Croatian. Uh, talking a bit less, then I do speak Turkish, uh, Spanish, and. Um, I used to speak Czech Republic too, but I, I stopped a bit. Uh, yeah, so Albanian, English, German, Croatian, Turkish, and Spanish. So six languages. That is Bravo. very impressive. Bravo. It is just something that we love to see, of course, as Stolich said there earlier, um, you know, we're very proud linguistics over at SBS. So to have someone else that shares in that passion is amazing. Liridon, we can't thank you enough. As we say in Croatia, in my mother tongue, which means many thanks. Thank well, you for stopping gracias. by to chat to us here. And gracias. I mean, what, what else have you Danke in German. <laughs> There's so many more we could keep rattling off, but Liridon, we appreciate you making the time to come and speak to us. It was great to finally meet you. As I said at the top of our interview, there's so much hype around seeing you play your first game for Newcastle Jets. We wish you and the club all the very best as the season goes on, and we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Nick. I really appreciate your time, and I hope uh, you guys are uh, having a great day, great week. And looking forward to see you again. Thank you so much, Lily Don. All the best. Take care. Ciao for Bye. now. <laughs> and he said Vidimosa there, which is fantastic. He's got more Arsenal in his chest there. And we're hoping that we can actually see so much more from him on the pitch, Stolich. We're really looking to, to mm. looking forward to seeing him perform because, as I said, there have been so many raps and so much discussion around him and what he can bring. Robbie Cornthwaite in particular, who we know is a former Malaysian player, also came out on social media and said there's so much excitement around this because of what he can bring. Once he gets going, once he's fully fit, we can expect to see see a real show and a lot of things going for Newcastle Jets this season. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how, you know, he's a number 10, how the strikers play off him, because maybe the strikers haven't been scoring as many goals as we'd hope from them, whether it be Roy O'Donovan or Valentino Yule. Maybe Liridan can be the piece, just that final piece of the puzzle that really lets him explode. Because as I was saying, they are currently 11th, but in the games that I've seen, I think they're better than that suggests on the table. I think they have been creating chances. And we, we know the difficult preparations that they had at the start of the season so you know I've actually been kind of impressed with Craig Deans and how they've been and I think you know in a few weeks we're going to start to see them rise up the table I think it'd be great to see because Deansy also, you know, such a stalwart of that football club has invested so much and I'm glad that he's been given this opportunity to head up Newcastle. And as you said, I don't think that their performances and, and where they are on the table is necessarily a decent and accurate enough reflection mm. of that. I mean, the, the game against Adelaide, and we'll talk about the A-League a little bit later on before we welcome our next special guest, but the game against Adelaide, Deansy did come out and say that that was probably their worst performance of the season, but it was because they were punished for those mistakes uh, yeah. that they did make and they 
just didn't have enough going in the midfield. They weren't able to dictate and control the game as they normally will do in previous performances. So we're hoping, as you said, to see that Lididon fills that gap and he's able to perform really well in midfield for them and dictate play and add something going forward because they need more of that penetration going forward. But great to chat to him again. As we said, a lot of excitement around him. A lot of excitement also around our next special guest. Of course, he, he too has also been in the headlines and a lot of discussion around what's going on with this football club. It's very topical at the moment. Let's welcome to the show our next special guest, former Melbourne Victory board member and managing director, Richard Wilson. Richard, thank you so much for making the time to catch up with, with us here on the World Game Live. As I said there, there's been so much discussion around this football club. And, and, and to be honest, I'm quite grateful for the honesty that you have had throughout this period and, and, and why you chose to walk away from the club in which you cited that you were at odds and, and experienced differences with the board of directors. But can you give us some more insight into what actually specifically drove you to walk away? Because you're a foundation member with the club for so long, but what was it that really pushed you over the edge? Well, nice to be with you, Lucy and, uh, and Nick. Um, first time on the uh, on the program, so it's uh, it's good to be with you. And uh, that's exciting news about um, that boy for Newcastle. It's uh, it's great for the league. We need those sorts of excitement players coming in, and hopefully, uh, you'll have an impact for Newcastle. Um, look, Lucy. Um, I guess uh, as I've spoken in recently in my press media releases. You know, there's uh, decisions and, and, and debates go along over the journey of, you, of your time on a board and, um, and you know, everyone has a voice and has an opportunity to say things and, and I guess for me in the end, um, you know, the decisions around uh, um, just where the club was heading dire in a direction, where, you know, where it, was, where it was going on the field and with its coaching and, and recruitment areas, uh, just, uh, you know, off the field things with... Or field think programs, you know, we've there's some departures of the club, um, just uh, our culture, and and so I think at the end we reached a point where, uh, as I've said before, that um, Anthony and I had some views that differed, and uh, and in the end um, it was just it was just a reasonably easy decision, really, in the end to say, well, look, you know, you guys need to go your way, and I'll I'll go my way, and and uh, and we'll park comfy. It really is a sad state of affairs and you said as much in your statement when you clarified that you would be leaving, but the club then responded to that saying the board along with a number of shareholders welcome his exit, which has been the subject of discussion for some time. The club now has an opportunity to move forward in a unified way. What we're not seeing is a unified football club at the moment, irrespective of your presence there or not. It's clear, Richard, that something is going wrong with Melbourne Victory, one of the biggest and, and most historic clubs in terms terms of their success also, but mm. a club that we've come to appreciate and respect for being a very big club in Australia. Mm. But to see this mm. sudden fall from grace over the last few years has been really frustrating for a lot of the fans, but even those of us in the media and casual observers of the game who have identified that something's not right. You pointed to recruitment being a point of contention as well as coaches. That seems to be a real issue. We're not seeing the desired results, um, you know, now under Grant Brebner. I did hear at the time before Grant was appointed, and I mean, he made it very clear publicly that he didn't want the job, that he didn't feel that he was ready. But I heard Richard, and I'd be happy for you to clarify if if I'm wrong, but that John Aloisi was also in the running for that gig. Um, why was there this real clear decision that they wanted Grant to take the role? Um, look, 
there's probably a number of things that um, when you go through a coaching process, um, you know, you set up a committee, um, they interviewed a number of people, um, and then you, you, you fine-tune the list and you go through that process and you're trying to find who's the right fit, who's going to be the right leader uh, and, 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 and man manager and, and, and bring the, the skill sets and capabilities. Um, in the end, uh, the committee brought to the board and a, uh, I wasn't on that committee. Um, so it was, uh, so you sort of, so from my perspective, you, you know, you're allowing the process to unfold. Um, and I, I, it's not for me really to say who was, uh, who was in, in and who was out of, um, the coaching, uh, interviews and, and so forth. Um, in the end, it was clearly there, there was a, a lot of discussion around the appointment with, with Grant and, uh, and, and, uh, his commitment to really believing he was the person and the right person for the job. And in the end, he convinced everybody that he was, he was ready for it. He was committed to it. He believed he could do the job. And, you know, because if you don't have that mindset, then you're not going to get the job at Melbourne Victory, are you? So, you know, he was, he was very strong in his views that, you know, he was, he felt he was, it was uh, his time to have a, have a go and he was ready for it. Mm, it's and, interesting. And it was the decision that was made. It's interesting, like I said before, I'll throw over to Stolich for some questions. It's interesting only because he did come out publicly and say, well, oh, I don't know, I don't necessarily mm. feel that I'm ready for this job. Mm. So to have insight around what led to that mm. recruitment process is really helpful. Stolich, I'm going to hand over to you. Yeah, uh, thanks so much for joining us, Richard. Uh, I just wanted to bring up this comment from Ivan Strugan, who I believe is a Victory fan. He said, Victory does very well when it comes to corporate partners, events and sponsors, but have left the football department to the side for years. 2018 covered those cracks. That's kind of a, a widely held feeling, I think, amongst the supporters. And I think for a, a few years, you know, maybe even like three, four years ago, we were always praising Victory. Look at how Melbourne Victory is run best club in the country, most members, successful on the field. You were bringing in players even in 2018, like Kazuki Honda, like Ola Toivonen. and it was a real kind of excitement and buzz around mm. the club. Now mm. we see this weekend, 6-0 loss to Melbourne City, protests happening at the training ground. What, in mm. your opinion, has made that decline happen? What has been the kind mm. of, whether it's the decision-making process, we, you know, we've had multiple coaches, whether it be, you know, Kurtz, whether it be Brebner, whether it be Muskie, you know, it, it it feels like it can't be blamed on one person. So, what do you think has made that decline happen? Yeah, look, sp sporting clubs are um, are really interesting businesses. You know, you, it's very hard to be at the top of your game all the time. Um, and you're in a world game. You're in a salary capped environment, and um, you know, you need to have uh, everything, all the boxes ticked. You know, it's with your leadership, your your standard and quality of people leading the key areas of the business you need to have a really strong culture you need to be able to recruit you know the, the talent and understand what that squad looks like and and how you can get it to play in a way and a style that is going to uh, be exciting but also winning um you know and the, the newcastle grand final championship which is what you've talked about there um, you know, I think we were around 20 points behind uh, Sydney, I think, at the end of the season. Um, you know, and I actually credit that win um, to the leadership of Kevin and, and the culture of the club that really got the players, you know, through into that ability to win, albeit, you know, controversially. But, um, but it doesn't take much, you know, when Kevin decided to leave 
you know, you've really got to make sure you get the right people. And uh, and I have said this before, that senior men's team in an elite sporting competition in, in a challenging environment that, uh, that soccer finds itself in is critical. And and I think that's been part of uh, where we've where we've missed. Um, I, you know, Marco Kurtz, I'm not sure, was given enough time to really uh, to show his experience and, and so forth. And having made that decision, you needed to really have have someone come in and who could really take you know an Ange Postecoglou, Kevin Musket style person, people who've really got those leaderships. And and um, and uh, Carlos didn't work out, so. It just uh, it just continues to to demonstrate that you've just got to invest in the best people, the very best people you can find, to to take you to where you want to be. To you. otherwise, you risk um, finding yourself in positions that that at the minute Melbourne Victory's in. These things will work themselves out as 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 time goes on. They always do. You know, it's a strong club. Um, it's got great pedigree. It will it will work its way through it, but. And every club goes through it, but we're going through it at the minute. Mm, it's true. Football is cyclical. A question coming through from Daniel Joshua via Twitter. Good afternoon to you, Jan Daniel. Pardon me. And thanks so much for your question. And it's also off the back of what um, Nick mentioned earlier, Richard, in the way of seeing these protests that the fans staged uh, at the training ground the other day. How, in Richard's opinion, can Victory fans protest slash make a statement against the board in voicing our discontent while still supporting the team? Well, I think uh, <laughs> you never give up on your, on your club, you know, whether it's, your, you know, your, your football club, whatever, you know, that's, that's you, you're in and you're in. Um, you can, and as a fan, as a member, you've got the right to be disenchanted when things go wrong and voice, voice that opinion through programs like these and forums and, and other, and otherwise I'm not sure I'd be, Supporting the demonstration that happened at the training facility the other the other morning, um, it's uh, we've been probably a bit over the top, but but that's the passion that goes with the game. I might add. Um, why? And that's why, why, you, why sorry, why, great... why, sorry, Richard. Why do you think it was over the top? Oh, I just think that um, you know, other than the flares, which is which is an issue in themselves, and 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 just using that in front of the players. I think that just, you know, the players thought that the players aren't trying. You know, they're, they're, they're in there, it's their job, it's, they're, they're committed, they're passionate. I saw that when we, they kicked a goal and uh, all went to Brebs. You know, they're, they're, in, they're in it. I know that they're 100% um, committed to it, they're hurting. And, um, and I, so, he, so I think there's a bit of an overreaction to go that, to that level. Um, but, um, but to the point of, of, of supporting and how, how could people uh, vent their spleen maybe, um, get their opinions across, their passion across what's going on, so, you know, there's, you know there's, there's the normal ways. There's been a lot of press around it. Uh, there's forums you can go to. Uh, you can write directly to the club, you know, in, straight through the website and uh, express your views. So there's a lot of ways that people can, can express their concerns and, and, and ideas and, and, and thoughts. Peter Papadakis, good afternoon to you, Peter, via Facebook. Thanks so much for your company here on the World Game Live. Your question is, what's next for you, Richard, he wants to know. Before we move into the direction of talking about the shareholding, which I'll allow Stolich to um, to, to dictate, um, what is next for you? Because this must be quite sad for you also. I mean, you've, you've said as much already, but yeah. quite a difficult decision to arrive at as well. Yeah. To leave what you're so passionate about. 
Yeah, it is. It's um, it was it it was sad. It was uh, you know, something uh, that Jeff Lord started, and he, he was with me in my little my local football club, and so we AFL club. We sort of got together, and you know, he led the charge, and I came in, and and then obviously I went in and was managing director there for for three nearly three years to um, steady the ship and get things moving again. So invested, taken a, a lot of investment, but it's been a fantastic journey, um, and. Uh, and sport brings a lot of things that businesses don't do. And I think there's a lot of relationships, sort of, it's the world game. You know, I, I was probably at the heartbeat of that Liverpool game at the MCG when we brought Liverpool over. And, you know, so it's, uh, this club has got a rich history in international friendlies and, and promoting the game and playing the Asian Champions Leagues and, and, and so forth. So, and winning titles and having great players play, for, play at our club. So, yeah, it was a very uh, hard decision and, and sad. Um, but what's next? Well, there's always opportunities for me going forward, and uh, I've got a few little things going on um, in behind the background. So, um, uh, Chris Nick is more than welcome to give me a give me a call, and uh, we can have a catch up um, anytime. Um, given he was he was our company secretary when we first started Melbourne Victory, by the way, um, as our lawyer, uh, Chris. So we've had a long history with him. Um, does, that mean, does that mean you're angling for a gig with Football Australia? Uh, I, I'm I'm open to uh, lots of sorts of things. I think uh, um, what I've been involved in at all the different levels in, in 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 football over the last 15, 16 years, I've got a pretty solid grasp of what goes on, even at the state league levels, NPL levels, and and uh, and beyond. So it's something I'd like to have a chat to Chris about. I'm glad we could facilitate your push for a job there too, Richard, while we're at it. <laughs> so please ask him about his shareholding um, offering as well, which is really quite interesting too. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, for a while, Luce, we've always kind of been interested in the idea of fans owning the club and we've talked about it in, in you know, Germany, for example, the 50 plus one model where the fans often own in almost most cases own at least 50 percent or more of uh, the club. Um, Richard, just talk us through kind of your share offering. We'll bring up uh, where people can actually buy the shares. Uh, if you type, basically type in Melbourne Victory shares, it comes up on Google. This is the website here, your chance to have a say in this iconic club. So basically just explain to us exactly what are, what would kind of, you know, your average fan be buying. Kind of the minimum purchase, I believe, is $1,100. Um, that gets you kind of 500 shares. But what, what exactly kind of say are they getting? What does this mean? Because this is kind of the first time that we're really seeing it, um, you know, at this level. And also I guess there's been some concern over the fact that the current board might be able to block any new shareholders coming in mm. and what, what's kind of the the mm. issues around that? Yeah. So I think um, the opportunity to, for for members, as you, you've said, right, there's different models around the world. You've got England private ownership and Australia's been private ownership. You've got member-based clubs, Spanish clubs, uh, member-based clubs. You've got a bit of a, you have a, um, a mixture of publicly listed companies, clubs and that have, um, people are share are shareholders in those publicly listed soccer clubs like Uve. So the opportunity really is there for for Australian fans, and I think it's a bit of a game changer, an opportunity for other clubs as well. But I think certainly for the victory fans and supporters and anybody else who wants to really have an investment in a, in an elite uh, football club in Australia, which you can't do is in the AFL, for example, um, that gives them a real say, a real voice. And a real ownership, 
mindset as opposed to just being a fan or a member. It's a deeper experience and it's generational because it's something you can have for uh, for the rest of your life and your family's life, a share in this football club. So it, it brings up it brings all of those attributes to it. It brings you an ability to understand the financials and the financial running of the club. It brings you an opportunity to go to the AGM and ask questions and uh, and collectively as shareholders um, to be really able to uh, put points of view forward, suggestions, maybe even 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 uh, have a collective a seat on the board or a part of a form part of a subcommittee that, that you know that shareholders can really have a have a real strong say in the direction of the club. Um, the experience, the education, the knowledge that is out there um, is substantial, and I don't think I don't think any board or one owner has all the answers. And I think the people can provide a lot of support and structure. And it, it would also provide for shareholders a fantastic um, broader base for for the club for, for for shareholders to to be really invested in, in in a club. And at a time like this for for Melbourne Victory, it's actually a, a classic example of we don't want fans not turning up to the games. And and shareholders and those who've got a real investment will want to continue to support their club, support that investment, and and support the game. So. To that point, I think there's a whole raft of really important reasons why um, people can and perhaps should become a shareholder of Melbourne Victory. Further to Nick's point there, um, the issues around whether or not the actual existing board will back this uh, application or, or the, okay. the sale of it in this fashion. Mm. Um, can you can you add some insight to that? Because, I mean, you can go through all this trouble, the fans can give their money, $1,100 or whatever it may be, and then if the board decide to block it, it's just a matter of the money goes back to the fans and, and it doesn't go anywhere. Have you gauged the interest of whether or not this is something the existing board would be interested in or because of the way in which you left, is this something that they could block out of spite, Richard? <laughs> um, look, uh, the, look, the advice uh, is quite clear and we've had, we've, we, uh, we put this in pretty early. It wasn't really for, to, for this this sort of situation, the the reality, the legal, and the reality is um, that no, the shares can't be blocked. Um, it's very simple; they have to register the transfers. Um, uh, there's Corporations Act around around that, and and so we're actually lodging uh, the first few transfers today uh, into Victory, um, and uh, uh, and we've there's not been one transfer that's ever been knocked back. Uh, by the board, simply because it's it's it really you know this it would have to be very very unique and specific reasons why uh, that could happen. But the reality is that really it can't happen. It's just a of going through a process that we put in place that the board can approve will approve that approve the uh, approve them will be and the shares will be registered. But we uh, don't believe okay. in any issues whatsoever. Okay, that's good to know. Um, great clarity around that. Um, uh, another statement from, or question rather, from Perry Tsangas via Facebook. Before I throw over to Stolich for one last question, um, Richard, why hasn't Victory? Why doesn't Victory have their own training base slash facility as was promised for twelve? Years? We're getting a lot of comments coming through about training facilities and bases. I mean, we know that a lot of A League clubs don't actually own their own facilities. For example, Sydney FC, the most successful club in domestic Australian football history, do not own their 
their own training ground. And it, it, it is quite jarring for us to know that, considering how successful these big clubs like Melbourne Victory have been, mm. don't actually own their own facilities. Can you give us some insight into that? Yeah, so... For, for Victory, um, we've obviously been on the lookout. Um, I had a chat with Ange when he came. We brought him in um, and he said, look, find me a facility and I'll build you an academy. And it's really an important part of the lifeblood and the talent pool process to have a, have, have a facility so you can bring all your young kids into that, into that, into those pictures and in those surroundings and, and they feel as if they're, you know, they're part of um, their, their future. Uh they're difficult to find. They're not cheap. Um, how big or how small do you have one? And so to date, you know, we had a a real opportunity uh, at Mar with Maribyrnong Council that in the end fell through, which was really disappointing. And uh, it was an opportunity much earlier than that back at, at Essendon with the Essendon Football Club over the airports and that, that didn't quite work out for us. So We've been on the we've been on the lookout. We the club's well aware of it. The board are well aware of what we're trying to get there too. And hopefully, in the next few months, there'll be some positive news around that. Stolich, yeah, I just wanted to ask. You know, you were saying that kind of the board can't block the shares and stuff like that. But in the terms and conditions, kind of on the website, I'll just bring it up here. But mm. basically, uh, what it says is that um, the shares between the seller and the applicant is expressly subject to the board registering the transfer of the sales share. Of, uh, Melbourne Victory's register in the event that the Melbourne Victory board lawfully and validly refuses to register a transfer of shares between the seller and the applicant, the purchase money shall be returned to the applicant. So I guess that saying that, so what on what grounds could, you know, the board lawfully and, you know, validly refuse it, I guess is the question. Yeah. So it, it's been a whole raft of transactions done over the years. Um, all, all of which have been approved, and I, we, we've, our, this is our lawyers putting in um, these terms and conditions to obviously protect the vendor's interests, and yeah. also to protect the applicant's interests. Yeah. Um, but as I said before, um, there's never been a transfer rejected, uh, okay. and and our legal advice is that there's there's no reason why they they can be. But you said it's, it's covering; it's just covering all the bases from a legal perspective, and, and and assuring the applicants that if if something goes wrong, that we don't believe is there. But if it did, then there's certainty back to the applicants that they'll yeah. get their money back. Okay. And is there a worry? I guess that you know Di Pietro or the current owners could buy up the shares that you're offering out. Yeah. So, so that's that's been um, talked about. Um, we've. Been, I've been very clear. We've been very clear. These are going to the public. They're on the public now. Anyone can buy them. We've had ten thousand hits on our on our website. So there's been substantial interest. Um, the, the the applications are flowing through, um, and uh, so that's pretty clear as to where we, where we sit on this. Uh, one more question before we let you go, Richard, uh, from David Magro via Facebook. Good afternoon to you, David. Thanks so much for your question. He wants to know, Richard, what are the risks of buying some shares? Obviously, we've addressed whether or not it is for whatever reason blocked that the monies will certainly go back to the applicants. But are there any other associated risks for fans who are out there listening to this thinking this could be something I'm interested in? Yeah, so look, Buying buying shares in a football club is not like buying in BHP. So 
there's a whole different rationale around why, you know, people would want to buy and have an investment in a football club. Passion's one of them. Um, being really engaged in the club they love and having a little piece of it so they can say, oh, I'm, a, I'm a part owner of Melbourne Victory is 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 the psychology around a lot of what a lot of people would be thinking and wanting to get involved it's something that's never happened before it's a, probably a one-off opportunity probably won't happen again um so here you know so you're looking for a, a massive financial return i'm not sure any sporting club would deliver that um but if you're looking for something that you can say i can have a say in this club i can i can have i, I can have a voice I can turn up to an AGM, I can get shareholder information updates, I can get financials, and I can feel a real heart and soul of just not being a member uh, or a fan, but, you know, saying, you know, this is, this, is, this is part of our family, part of my life at, this, at a deeper level, and that's, that's, that's really what's on offer here. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for, to make a, a multi-million dollar return on it, well, um, difficult. But, um, but, you know, in the end of the day... Uh, that's the that's the real that's the real what it's, what people are about, and that's what we're seeing in the in the replies and the in the feedback through the through the website and um, and the applications. Mm. Final question from me before we let you go, Richard. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're quite confident of the fact that the club will get itself out of this hole, and it is as I've mentioned too that football is cyclical. It is just something that they're going through, mm. like every other football club does. Mm. Liverpool, I'm a Liverpool supporter. We're going through that too at the moment. Um, but are you confident that they'll be able to steer the ship to, to towards calmer waters? Under the current regime, with Di Pietro as chairman, in, in the current format, with the existing board, with Grant Brebner as the coach, can you see it in its current format going towards a clearer horizon and a better horizon? Look, you know, I'm sure they're, uh, you know, ever since left, they've, they've been well and truly talking about, you know, where the club's at and where the team's at and, you know, and what are the things that have, have caused it to have a, you know, a, a really, you know, probably a bad start is is the right word, really, uh, to the season on the field. Um, I think they've got to be brave. I think they've got to be courageous. I think you've got to leave all the egos and 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 uh, at the door. And I think they've got to say, well, let's be really honest. Who are the right, have we got the right people leading this organisation? And it, and if we do. Then how do we how do we get out of this and how do we progress or what really what changes do we need to make whether it's personally personally uh, wise or structurally wise or culturally wise is some big they're big questions and um, and uh, and I'm sure that they're uh, capable of making them if they leave uh, their egos at the door. So it sounds like ego is a big problem at Melbourne Victory at the moment. Um, and, and sad all around, as I said, um, Richard, I really appreciate you coming and joining us at a time that is very difficult for one of the, the greatest clubs in Australian football here. It's really sad to see them go through this fall from grace and we hope that they are able to return to their best because I think that a, a strong victory makes for a strong competition in addition to a host of other teams that we've seen struggling oh, yeah. so far throughout this campaign. We wish you all the very best. It sounds like you've got plans to take over Football Australia or at least, the very least insert yourself in some way. So we'll stand by for that news. But again, like I said, really Good. appreciate you making the time and for your valued insight today. For fans that are interested in becoming a part of this shareholder offering, of course, you can head to the, web, the website, pardon me. So, Richard, thanks for your time and wish you all the very best. Good on you. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Richard. Yes.
great to have Richard's company there. Um, I'm not sure. A, a lot of the fans, they're saying we're not sure that he's answering um, a lot of the questions that we do have. At least we're able to clarify a few points on that Stolich before we welcome our next special guest. But do you feel, I mean, I asked him that question deliberately because I wanted to know, uh, purely because of the comments he'd made in his statement about whether or not he felt as though that under this current regime, the club will move forward in a positive direction because it seems as though he left the club because he believed that they couldn't move in a positive direction because of the existing personnel there. Yeah, I mean, that's that to me is very clear that the, the, he has clear issues with Di Pietro and the management there. Um, and, you know, I think he's making that clear with doing this. Um, you know, and as for the, the shares and Big Mom, I think it's, in theory, it's really cool. I really like the idea of fans being able to buy shares in the club. I'd love to buy shares in my club, and even I'd be interested in buying shares in, you know, Melbourne Victory or even the, I know the Central Coast Mariners are kind of putting a supporter trust together to buy shares in that club as well. That's kind of a bit further down. But actually, you know, to be fair to those Central Coast Mariners fans, from my understanding, they're doing their due diligence. They're not just rushing in. Yeah. They're making sure they're getting it right at every step, which I really do appreciate. So, you know, I say good luck to the fans who are buying these shares and I, and I hope it does work out. And that's why we kind of wanted to make sure that, you know, that the board couldn't block it or that it wasn't kind of just a, a money-making exercise. And, you know, hopefully the fans can help turn the club around because not only have they had problems on the field when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to coach selection, but also off the field. They used to have a thriving act of support. The fans are constantly complaining there about over-policing, security issues, stadium issues, you know, certain regulations at Amy Park, for example, but then at the tennis, which is in the same precinct, you know, there's not regulations over standing and singing and all that. So there's a lot of issues around Melbourne Victory that affects the fans. And I would love to see the fans of not only Victory, but of all clubs have a say on the board. And so at least this is an opportunity to do so. Now, I think it's important for Richard and, you know, the people selling their shares to make sure that the fans feel like this is a worthwhile investment. Because it's $1,100, you know, in, in today's time with a pandemic, it's not easy just to throw that on a club and, you know, you might not get that back. So unless you're unless you're a mask manufacturer or a, yeah, a vaccine yeah. manufacturer, or a hand sanitizer, <laughs> hand sanitizer is a big money. But, oh, gee, it's yeah. Ridiculous. yeah. So I don't know. I I think it's I think it's very interesting, and I appreciate Richard coming on the show. Um, and yeah, I hope I hope it works out for the fans uh, that do buy the shares. We'll talk about Melbourne Victory's on-field issues a little bit later on in our A-leg wrap, but quite the opposite, pardon me, of scandalous and to use a, a certain uh, ITV uh, presenter's terms of diabolical, quite the opposite of all of that. Remember, you heard him have a go at Pierce Morgan. He called it diabolical behaviour, and what I'm trying to say is quite the opposite of diabolical behaviour that we're going to see from our next special guest. What She's got nothing even remotely close to being Pierce Morgan-esque about her. In fact, she is one of the superstars of Football Australia. Sarah Walsh, I tried to make a, a quite clever <laughs> comparison there. It clearly didn't work out because my co-host couldn't get it. Maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know, but it's fabulous to have the company of Football Australia's Head of Women's Football, Women's World Cup Legacy and Inclusion, Sarah Walsh, the great Walshie here with us today. How the bloody hell are you, Walshie, first and foremost? Love seeing you on our program. Great to be here. Thank you, Lucy. Hi, Nick. Um, look, terrible segue, but great intro. <laughs> <laughs> I deserve that. I absolutely deserve that. There's a door out the back here. I might just see myself like this yeah. yesterday. Um, but I have to ask you, tell us first and foremost, 
how is the Women's World Cup legacy planning going? Because I know that, you know, we always have the opportunity to talk to Jane Fernandez, who, by the way, I was so delighted to see that she was appointed in that role. I think she's so deserving of it. She was fantastic for you guys throughout the whole process in, in really leading and spearheading the bid. But for me, my greatest interest while she lies with the legacy planning and how that's going and, and how we're hoping to forge that legacy post the Women's World Cup. So give us some insight. Where are you at on that? Yeah, good question. Uh, firstly, I'll just touch on Jane. I think it's an important, um, you know, in very related um, conversation. We're awfully proud of Jane. Uh, she most definitely deserves the uh, the promotion into the CEO role. It was, a, it was most definitely a, a really good uh, move on FIFA's part. So there's a lot happening on uh, in the space of setting up the entity at the moment, and Jane is... Um, I guess spearheading that with with FIFA in Australia, working with um, CEO James Johnson. So, uh, yeah, plenty to come there. I'll, I'll talk to Legacy today. As you said, Lucy, uh, we launched. I think it was two Tuesdays ago. Mm-hmm. Week. Um, yep. But there's plenty, plenty happened since then. We we had some really great, um, I guess, interest and support from uh, federal ministers um, at the launch. So it was exciting. We had plenty of people there. Um, the likes of Tanya um, Plibersek was there. Um, we obviously had our parliamentary friends of football. It was a full house, um, a lot of interest. I think you know, it's, it's important to note at a time, you know, we're, we're off the back end of this pandemic. We've got the vaccine rollout. Um, Legacy, we are very much pitching as uh, a program for federal government and an initiative that our sport can actually deliver to you know, help with the economic recovery um, of broader society. We have over 2,500 plus community clubs. We have the biggest um, sporting code in terms of participation and we're growing. So um, we are, we are the, the organisation that can help the, the federal government um, you know, rebuild the community, not just economically, but socially. And, and when you think about gender equality and, and everything that the Women's World Cup uh, will bring in 2023, uh, we're at the forefront of those conversations. So um, I think it's, you know, it's so exciting for our game. It, it's not just for the women. We're talking about community infrastructure. We're talking about Indigenous programs. Um, every part of our game will benefit from, um, you know, legacy and us hosting the Women's World Cup 2023. This is so exciting to hear, Walshie, before I hand over to Stolich, because I don't recall us having these types of high-level conversations, particularly with federal government, where with respect to the Asian Cup and how we viewed that and the legacy that that left behind, which I know the great Ange Postacoglu, I think, in many respects, had every right to come out not all that long ago and say, well, what legacy? We didn't work hard enough to put plans in place to ensure that we actually had a tangible legacy to live off after that success. What have we learned from that and what's different this time around, Walshie, in terms of Football Australia's approach? It's a really good question, um, Lucy, and Sam Lewis, actually, a friend of uh, SBS, has also pressed me on this point. Um, well, I think there's two parts to this uh, and one being the fact that we're starting it before the event um, and it's a really important point. That's something that we, we discussed with Soraya Berriman from FIFA. She was like, this is fantastic. You guys have started well, well in advance and if you're talking about a, a target of 50-50, particularly for gender equality, uh, the work had to start yesterday. So um, that's that's one key point where we're starting well in advance of the actual tournament and all of our measures and targets extend beyond the actual event itself as well. So we're looking to 2027. Um, so as you can see, you know, four years after the actual event, that's one point. 
Um, legacy also, uh, obviously, through and look, I can't talk to the greater detail around Asian Cup because I wasn't around for that. Mm -hmm. uh, what I'm told is that it, it's it's sat with the LOC. Um, legacy sits with Football Australia, and it's actually not a program or it's not a department. It actually has touch points with with every part of the business, and it starts with our board and um, our CEO and James Johnson. So it's literally embedded into everything that we do. Uh, and again, that's a really important point for discussions with the federal government uh, because you know this has to be sustainable. Um, and really, when you think about the eleven principles, um, legacy is actually just underpinned by that. So it's something that's going to help us accelerate the work that's called out in the eleven principles. Mm, and third point being that you're involved as well, which I like to know because you know I'm a big fan of yours. Leonard uh, Gregory via Twitter, good afternoon to you, Leonard. Thanks so much for your comment. Yeah, can't do legacy after the event as people just bask in glory and nothing gets done. Really well said. Leonard Stolich, over to you, some questions for Walshie. Yeah, Walshie, I wanted to ask, uh, there was this article in the City Morning Herald from Vince Rigari, Football Australia to pitch for nearly $300 million in funding for the 2023 World Cup legacy. It's a lot of money. Uh, it's not easy to get that amount of money out of the government. So what is it exactly kind of the big the big sales pitch and what is this $300 million kind of going to go for? Because there's talk here about a centre of, you know, football, a home of football, that kind of being a the, the kind of big ticket item, but what are some of the things and, and are we confident of getting this money? Yeah, it's it's a good question because I think it's important to note, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic. Well, not in the middle, we're coming out the back of that. So we're very conscious of uh, how we developed and designed um, the programs that we wanted to build out. And again, being sustainable and thinking about how that is funded through state government asks as well and, and particularly local. Large majority of this ask is through the infrastructure pillar, uh, which does talk to a home of football, but it also uh, importantly talks to community facilities. So um, that's where a large part of the ask um, is. And it really, uh, you know, when you think about um, this stat, I'm not sure you've heard it before, but only one in five um, of our community facilities are considered inclusive for women and girls. Yeah. If I just let that hang for a second. Yeah, it's, um, hideous. It's, it's hideous. Well, you just think about the experience that women and girls have, um, and they might just be small things, but if a community club doesn't have access, and we're not a lot of all of these conversations are not just about new places to play because that will be hugely important if we want to reach equality and participation. We're going to need an extra... 400,000, uh, I guess, opportunities for women and girls. We, we are going to need new places to play. A lot of these conversations that we're having with government um, is around, you know, are we are we uh, using to the to the full amount the, the current facilities we already have? You know, are we actually, um, you know, capitalising on it? So if you think about uh, what bad lighting might do for, you know, a women and girls team that's put out on the backfields, well, you know, putting aside safety and security, um, you know, you really can't utilise these facilities to the full amount. You know, you really have to stop playing at 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. Um, really good light system will, will hopefully uh, let us, allow us and enable us to better use, make better use of the current facilities we have. Uh, I don't want to talk about change rooms because it seems to be a tagline at the moment, but if we have women and girls having to get changed before they even turn up to the, the pitch, um, let alone female amenities. So these are the conversations, they're nuanced, but a large majority of those funds we're asking for are for a you know, home of football. We're one of the only codes. 
doesn't have a home of football. Uh, we need somewhere to call home for the national body. We obviously have a project in play uh, in Victoria at the moment, but uh, you know we need we need somewhere that the community can call their home, where we can run coach education, somewhere where our national teams can play, um, and, and thinking about the broader access for the administration of the game. Um, the, the other pillars, obviously, participation, leadership, um, international engagement, and. Fifth one, I've just had a, had a brain, <laughs> brain blank. Right. It's a long interview. It's a long interview. <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, we, we definitely need more women and girls in the game. Um, yeah. And we, uh, you know, we're, we're definitely thinking about what we need to change around the system, but also kind of what's the programmatic um, work we can do to make sure that uh, the women that, that are currently in our game are, uh, are better supported. I think you're doing fantastic work, Moshi, and it's great to hear that um, some real and, and, and honest and authentic progress is being made in this space, particularly when it comes to your discussions with government. I mean, when I hear about women's change rooms, I only have to think back to sitting down with a group of W League players at the PFA headquarters a number of years ago now and listening to them having to get changed in car parks and the experiences like that. I mean, you've gone through difficult areas being a former player yourself, uh, you know, within the women's game that we've hopefully made some progress on but it sounds like this work will speak to that and I think it's really important. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we've got you here because we wanted to, to keep you around for our W League wrap because I'd love to hear a former Matilda's views on what the bloody hell's going on as well and a seasoned commentator, a fabulous commentator, by the way, but we've seen Canberra end Raw's undefeated run. Brisbane Raw have been sensational. Adelaide secured that statement win over Sydney. Jets condemned the glory to their sixth loss, uh, which has just been really tough to see for the West Australians. I think the pandemic has had a lot to answer for with respect to their season and victory-edged Western Sydney Wanderers. We want to ask, though, now that we have a clearer picture on who is in the running for the finals, there are at least a, a good five teams, but we know that Melbourne City are definitely out of that running. What happened to their season? We know that they were absolutely gutted off the back of last season. They lost a host of their, you know, their key players, their star Matildas, but they weren't able to regenerate. Why is that, Walshie? What really led to their demise this time around? Well, it's it's hard to to pinpoint one one major issue because they have some really great players there. I think that um, you know largely that team is being built around uh, I would say Matildas and international uh, really solid international players. So I think the transition into that younger group, although they do have some older uh, really good players there like Jenna McCormack. So it's um you know I think there's going to be a transition period for them to be able to um, you know rebuild. Where, where you look at someone like Sydney FC who have largely kept the core of core group of their players, and you look at those players, uh, the likes of Remy Seamson, um, you know, and obviously uh, Natalie Tobin, uh, all these players, Teresa Pelias, having a player like that, having that continuity is really important. And I think if you look at Melbourne City, the roster's changed a fair amount. So um, you really can't replace that kind of experience and continuity, particularly with with a coach. Look at Ante Juric. He un completely understands the style that he's going to play. Mm -hmm. He's been able to roll that over from year to year. Um, I I'd have to say that that really plays out when you, you extrapolate that across the team. So uh, I just absolutely love watching them play. I love watching Adelaide United. Yeah. Um, look, uh, I just thought that was fantastic on the weekend and um, I'm actually off to Sydney FC tonight. So... Uh, to watch the the A League match, but it's um, 
I just think it's fantastic for the for the game that we're we're starting to talk about Adelaide United making the finals. Uh, wow, what a story that'd be! Dylan Holmes was, I think she's just been fantastic, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think all these young players are getting more minutes. It, it's only a good thing. It's only a great thing for the national team. It builds a broader, um, I would say, talent pool for the Matildas. And I don't want to focus too much on the Matildas because I think the, the W League is a standalone. Um, it's going to look different in the future. I think that's, you know, women. the women's game is following the trends of men's football where the, the bigger clubs in Europe, and I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but uh, these trends are going to mean that the W League, you know, the face of the W League is ever-changing. And I'm actually excited by that. I think that, um, you know, I think we're going to see more and more players uh, find out who they are through the W League, uh, find really good opportunities overseas, um, and when they get to an age, they, they can come back. But uh, I'm awfully proud of, you know, watching some of these young players. Uh, we get to see them start their career, uh, and then when we eventually watch them on the big stage, we can say we were there to, to watch them when they were, you know, getting very little minutes. I just have to add, and I'll probably lose my job if I don't, the fifth pillar was my performance. <laughs> ah, ah, is that you watching Peter Philopoulos, the media manager? No. <laughs> no. It's my performance. It's, it's, it's so we can support this team and the junior, junior national teams uh, beyond 2023, lift the trophy. So uh, I can't believe That's good. That was like a 93rd minute equaliser. You just got in the box, bang, there we go. Just before the final whistle, we got there. Oh, it was like the Champions League this morning. You were in Porto, I rated it. The mad dash, but you got it in there, Walsh. You got the job done. Um, I just have to ask you, who's your favourite then for the W League title? Are you seeing, you know, that fall with Sydney FC or could there be an upset? And please tell me, are my beloved Canberra going to make the finals? I'm really stressed about this. Oh, look, I'm just talking as a punter here. Um, go on. I think Canberra United might sneak in. I think that um, probably builds some confidence. Um, Michelle Heyman's playing well, obviously. I think that's just been a, an amazing story to watch. Yeah. Um, uh, look, I think Sydney FC are probably too good, to be honest. Um, mm. I think they've obviously, you know, they're, they're out ahead. They've just got that experience at, at, at the pointy end. Um, I think, though, I really do think that, it's up for grabs. I really do. As we as we saw, they one one slip up like they did last weekend um, at, at the wrong time um, could mean trouble. But mm. um, you know they, they definitely want to build some momentum over the next three rounds. You can't discount Brisbane either. Stolich, one more question for Walshie before we say goodbye. Yeah, Walshie, uh, I want to talk about one of your former teammates, another striker, Michelle Heyman. She equaled Sam Kerr's record uh, on the weekend, you know, coming back from retirement. You know, we've had her on the show. She's just a fantastic personality, a fantastic ambassador for a game. But as someone, you know, who knows her being a former teammate, what does she bring, you know, to the competition? What makes her such a special striker? And, and yeah, what, what would you have to say about Michelle? Uh, for me, uh, it's kind of nostalgia. It's um, she. She is Canberra United. I mean, yeah. you know, I I, I wouldn't want to see her play for another club. Um, I was trying to explain this to someone the other day. Uh, I can't. I don't really know how many caps uh, Michelle Heyman has for the Matildas, but I think when she hangs up her boots, she'll be synonymous with Canberra United and the W League, mm. uh, much like Lena Kamas and Teresa Plyas. They're these stalwarts of the game like Alex Gross, 
to me, yeah. you know. You, you think about they really uh, gave blood, sweat and tears to, to the actual league. Um, yeah. And that's that's how I view Michelle Heyman. Um, so I think 61 that, caps while well, she's 61 caps. You won't lose your Matildas. job getting that one, but um, 61 caps for the Matildas. Yeah. 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 So look, I think that I can't say enough great things about Heyman. I, you know, it's, you know, she represents what we need to be better at as a game, and that's mm. maintaining, retaining the older players. I think that goes for the Matildas as well. I think that we have to create ways. Um, look at Katrina Gorey. Uh, you know, I think that we've done a really good job at making sure that she has everything she needs right now to be able to come back to the game. This is super important, uh, and we're working closely with the PFA on that. So um, these things are important to, to show that, yeah, you know, um, if we look after your load as, a, as, as you're playing um, and then also help you, if you want to go away and have a family and come back, um, we're going to retain players for longer, and I actually think the league will be better for that. And we're hearing that Football Australia have been so supportive of, of Minnie in this whole process. I mean, I think it's just such an admirable thing that she's doing. You too are also expecting a baby. So yeah. excited for you. The announcement just really brought such joy to my heart because I think you, you're both going to be wonderful mothers, beautiful parents. But International Women's Day, it's my final question before we say goodbye to you. Of course, we saw that over the weekend and also had the opportunity to celebrate Mardi Gras. I thought both were really, um, it was wonderful that they were both at the same time because they both represent the same ideals. It's about being who you are and being proud of that and also having equal opportunity, which is what we're all really crying out for as women and also in that LGBTIQ plus space as well. But what did International Women's Day represent for you this year, Walshi? Oh, I have to say it was a heavier year this year with everything that's happening in, in broader society. I, I don't think I would do it justice if I didn't mention that um, because, you know, I think the shifting conversation, um, you know, I'd love for it to be a celebration. I think we should always keep it even you know, after we, we, we reach gender equality. But I, I think there's some real issues that are happening outside and, and actually that, that impact our, our football community in some way or another. So I think that, um, you know, I, I really, I educated myself a lot this, this, this time. Um, you know, I, I went to the UN's women's breakfast and listened to uh, Grace Tame and uh, that was obviously very moving. So I think that it's had a bit of a, um, I would say, a sombre, um, day within my circles. Um, but look, I think there's, there's so much good and positivity. Um, I'm very, very uh, optimistic about the future. I really do think some of what's happening right now is just an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, and our game, I think, will be at the forefront with that, with legacy. Um, so, yeah, and it's also Harmony Day coming up as well, the end of March. March is always a big inclusion month for us. So, um, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. Walshi, we love your guts, as we used to say in primary school, because I think you're just you're such a superstar. You're a great advocate for the game. To have a former player of your calibre, a true legend within Matilda circles, at the administrative level, at Football Australia as the head of women's football, the Women's World Cup legacy and inclusion is so important. And it's a great trailblazing path for you because you can show other players that there too is a future post the game and that you, kill, you can still affect change in the game, even if it's off the pitch. You're a star. I wish you all the very best. Thank you for making the time for us here at the World Game Live and keep up the good work. We want to hear more about the Legacy Program and, and how that's all shaping up in the next few months again. Thanks, Lucy. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it.
Good on you. Great, Sarah Walsh. Um, As I said, love your guts because I've got so much time for her. I think she's doing fabulous things. She adds so much to the game. And to hear that they're really putting a focus, Stolich, on this legacy is important. Yeah, yeah, and I've got to say for you, much better uh, segue off the back there than on the front there. So. <laughs> you definitely improved with a bit of form. But, no, it's great. I mean, you know, we talk about for years, we're talking about we need football people in FFA and we need football people around there. And, look, you know, Sarah Walsh played 70 times for the Matildas. You know, that's, that's what we mean when we're saying football people. So it's great to see. And I think, you know, hopefully we'll obviously have to judge it further down the line and you know we're not going to see the full impacts of his legacy for the next 10 years um but you know that it sounds sounds like they're doing all the right things so it's good to see they certainly are um we've got to breeze through the remainder of this program because we still have a hell of a lot of things to get to i want to quickly touch on the uefa champions league which drew major talking points this morning of course erling harland the guy can't stop he's breaking records um still as as dortmund defeated Sevilla on aggregate Juve. now this is the big talking point santino mamone are you still with us our beloved Juve uh, apologist down in melbourne we hope you're okay mate but they crashed out of the round of 16 for the second consecutive year of course the, the, the previous year being to Lyon in the round of 16 and this time to uh, a very valiant Porto. Um, some scandal coming out of that uh, game involving Dortmund and Sevilla uh, with respect to Erling Haaland. But um, what does this mean for Pirlo? That's what I want to know. For those of you still with us on the stream, great to have your company here on the World Game Live this Wednesday, the 10th of March. But what does this mean for him, Stolich? Is he is he someone that Agnelli is going to be thinking, we've got to get rid of him. This has fallen well below our expectations. We brought in Ronaldo because we wanted Champions League success. It hasn't rendered that for the second year in a row. The guy's getting on in age as well where does this position him well i mean i think he's obviously in trouble i'd be surprised if he's still in the job next season but you know when it comes to agnelli saying oh this has been a disappointment with pillow what did you expect Pilo has never coached at this level before. Pilo had coached nine days in number 23s, and you put him as the, the senior manager of one of the biggest, the biggest team in Italy and one of the biggest teams in Europe. So in my opinion, it's not a surprise that it has gone this badly. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is Agnelli has huge questions to answer himself because the whole kind of strategy of Juventus has been, in, in my opinion, putting marketing before the football. And we've seen this previously. Real Madrid did it back in the early 2000s when they signed all the Galacticos and they had Beckham and Ronaldo and Zidane and Figo. Amazing kind of players, but the team actually didn't fit. They sold all those kind of the spine players. They they got rid of Makalele. They got rid of Hierro. And it cost them. It cost them. It did, they wanted to, you know, dominate everything, and they they failed. And we're seeing the same with Juventus, whether it comes to changing their their club crest. They've changed that to make it more appealing to a younger, maybe more international, you know, demographic. Um, they've changed the jersey. They've brought in Ronaldo, you know, who obviously is a fantastic, incredible player, but well, getting on in years, right? Then they've brought in – and then the strategy around the recruitment has been weird. You know, you Dybala kind of doesn't play as much. They, they've brought in Rabio on big money, even though he was a free transfer, but they had to pay a big salary for him. They brought in the likes of Aaron Ramsey in a similar situation. They brought in DeLitt, who I think is a good defender, but, you know, it just hasn't really worked out for them at all. And they were winning the Serie A every single season. Now they're not going to probably win it this season. They were making Champions League semifinals quite, you know, regularly. They were making Champions League final in 2015, in 2017. They changed the strategy because they wanted to be an even bigger club and make more money. And look where they are, consistently getting knocked out by the likes of Porto, Lyon, 
and Ajax. These aren't, you know, Bayern Munich, Liverpool, you know, Real Madrid. This is Juventus should be doing much better. And I think Agnelli, who is the one who is driving this European Super League, change the Champions League talk, he has to be the one that answers questions. I couldn't agree more. But the question here that I think is one of the most important ones, um, coming by one of our top fans here on the World Game Live, great to see you still with us on the stream, Michael Long. Hello. He wants to know who is coming in, though, and that's a valid question too. I mean, it, it, the big question is, you know, I guess what what do they want this club to be? You know, if they want kind of the they new... They want to be a success. They want them to win another Scudetto. They want this to be the, the biggest club in Serie A and one of yeah. the bigger clubs in the world and also a club that competes for Champions League glory. So if you yeah. want to be that, you obviously have to A, recruit for that and B, have the right coach to drive that. And in my yeah. opinion... Pirlo was not the right coach no. to do that, given his lack of experience. He's got all the class and credibility when it comes to his playing days, right, and he can command respect in a dressing room, but ultimately that will start to dwindle if you can't get your players to buy into exactly what it is you're trying to achieve tactically and also to to, to give you that respect as a coach, not just as a former player, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I thought it was very harsh when they got rid of Sadi. I thought Sadi did a really good job with uh, Juventus, you know. It wasn't kind of perfect, but I thought he was really really building something there. And there's someone who has a lot of experience in the game at all levels, you know. And then they flip, you know, all the experience in the world for someone like, you know, Pirlo. I, I don't know. It, to me, it's very strange. I mean, do you bring in someone like an Ancelotti who's doing quite well at Everton, you know, and has the experience of multiple Champions Leagues for different teams? Do you bring in someone like that who knows Italian football like the back of his hand? Do you bring in someone like Nagelsmann, you know, the, the new young kind yeah. of coach of the future, really impressive, shows that he can kind of get the maximum out of his players because, you know, maybe that's the way that football is heading. I, I don't know. You know, maybe you look within Italy and within the domestic system, but... I don't know. I, I would be surprised. I know they've been talking for years back. They were talking about getting in Guardiola and they wanted to bring in Guardiola and maybe Guardiola, you know, he's been in England, he's been in Spain, he's been in Germany. Is Italy kind of, the you know, the last big league that he wants to conquer? It doesn't seem that he's keen on leaving Manchester City at any time soon, but should Manchester City win a Champions League, maybe he'll feel like his job is done there. So, I don't know, but for me, Juventus need to make they they need to really restructure their team, their whole their whole system back to making football the priority because they I don't know always they're focused on you know these clubs are focused on building their brand and it's like well you know what the best way to build your brand is to win Champions Leagues to win titles that is the best way to do it the reason that you know Real Madrid became the biggest team in the world because they won the most Champions League the reason that Barcelona got as popular as they did yeah because they had Messi and these superstars and Ronaldinho but it was because I, they were constantly winning Champions Leagues I think they tried to do that though by signing a Ronaldo and trying to expand their brand and having this whole regeneration period perhaps that mm. was a signal that they they wanted to go that step further um and you'd think by signing a Ronaldo who let's say you know even though he's getting on in age I still think has so much to offer you can't really fault them for that and thinking that they could achieve greater success in Europe with the likes of him because he's been a, a real stalwart to, to so many of the successes that Real have had, for example. Well, so Definitely. But I would look at the success that Real Madrid have with Ronaldo and I would say, well, look at the role that Benzema played for Ronaldo and how good he was at creating space for Ronaldo and setting up Ronaldo. Look at the role that Modric played, you know, deeper in midfield, creating chances, making sure, you know, because that is all critical to Ronaldo and Real Madrid's success. So you need I to go... Okay. Critical to each other's success. Absolutely, absolutely. But I'm saying, for Juventus's point of view, you can bring one, but you're not necessarily going to bring the whole success. So you need to work yeah. out 
who is going to make who is going to make Ronaldo function to you know the best he can be and you know I've seen a, the games that I've seen of Juventus there's a lot of give the ball to Ronaldo and hope he will score whether it's either throw in a thousand crosses or you know smash you know shots from 30 meters <laughs> I like memes Popovich to Juve and um I mean, he's won. He's won. An, he's won a Champions League. He's won a he Champions not League. Not the uh, Christian Popovich to replace Murat. <laughs> Do we still know why the man got sacked? No, we still have no answers, right? If this happened in Europe somewhere, let's be quite clear on this: the mm. press and the, the the football media would be going absolutely bananas. But well, we get happening in Europe. It's happening in Greece. Yeah, well, yeah, but I'm saying if it was, uh, you know, in a Europe, like a European coach in a European league that this happened yeah. to, we'd all be screaming for answers. But we all just have to t accept the fact that they don't know why they got sacked. It's it's really quite hilarious to me. Um, tomorrow, before we quickly move on, uh, the aggregate between PSG and Barca will kill you to know is 4-1. And the aggregate will benefit me somewhat um, <laughs> for Liverpool and, and, and Leipzig is 2-0 is to my Ooh, beloved Liverpool. Careful, careful. You guys are <laughs> six in a row at home. It's disgusting. About six, it's it's actually, actually, shut up. It's actually disgusting, really. A-leg wrap, let's quickly defer to that. <laughs> we can still keep going and going. The Mariners go seven clear at the top. This club just cannot absolutely stop. The Wizarded Boy Boy is still absolutely killing it. These guys just, you know, they've, they've shut everybody up. But what I will say is I am comparing them to Leicester in so many ways the year they won it in 2016 because if you have a strong Melbourne victory, a strong Sydney FC, a very strong Western Sydney Wanderers, uh, you know, are we necessarily talking about this club as much? So it is a Leicester year for me in which I feel that um, just about anybody who is in a good and more stable position could take the title. But Sydney, they narrowly avoided their third straight defeat, very importantly. Sydney absolutely delighted in the derby smashing Melbourne victory, Adelaide down the Jets and Western Sydney Wanderers and Wellington claimed vital victories. The question that we're asking, and I want to know from Melbourne Victory fans, when we spoke to outgoing or former, really let's call him former now, board member Richard Wilson earlier, and if you missed that opportunity to catch the interview, you can watch this later on, but he believes they can turn it around, but are you confident, Stolich, that they can turn things around? Are the Victory fans confident they can turn things around? And I don't think, by the way, for the record, that they were um, over the top in going down to the training ground. This is a, a club that's passionate. You want to see your fans passionate when you're not doing well and also when you're doing well. So yeah. you can't benefit from passion when you're doing well, but then start to discredit it when they're not doing well, okay? So I applaud those fans for turning up and doing what they did, actually, and I know that some might disagree with that statement, but good on you for showing this football club that where they're at right now is damn well unacceptable. Stolich? Um, yeah, I mean, I like fans showing a lot of passion. So, you know, it shows to me that they care. I just think it is a bit awkward when Melbourne Victory trains on a public park. You know, yeah. you, you, you just play. I mean, what happens when you kick the ball over to the fans? Do the fans kick it back or were they too nervous to go over there or something? I, I heard that, you know, not many of the players went over to the fans and something. So it's a disaster at the moment at Melbourne Victory. Can they turn it around? Well, they can. Will they? I don't think so. I've seen very little evidence to suggest that they are going to turn around. It's not like they've just been unlucky. They've been outplayed and given some really poor performances. You know, mentally, they look very fragile the way they collapsed against City. Remember, it was 1-0 at half time, mm -hmm. um, And then it was kind of 6-0 at the end. And it just looked like once kind of the second goal went in, it, it all just collapsed. You know, maybe there's a lot of finger pointing going on. 
I don't know, but it just doesn't look, the squad composition doesn't look good. Brebner, you know, he doesn't have the experience either. If he is to turn it around, it'll be incredible, but he hasn't been in this, you know, position before where he needs to turn a team around because, you know, you only learn by doing it. So I would be very surprised if they do turn it around. You know, I think Brebner probably isn't the right fit, but again, you know, the problems of victory go higher up. The recruitment is not right. The strategy is not right. We need to see that change also. So... No, I don't think victory will turn around. But, you know, well well done, Men- uh, Melbourne City. You know, it's a historic win for them, 6-0 in the derby, really kind of a statement victory to say that, you know, victory on the decline and we we're on the rise. And, you know, if you were, let's say, investing in a team, almost Melbourne City would be the one you'd kind of be looking at because they are on the rise. And well done to Patrick Kisnorbo because there were big question marks about him at the start of the season, in yeah. myself included. I was a bit like, well, he's... He's going to be one of the first ones maybe to go. And, you know, they've done really well. They've turned around. Naboo's come in. Um, McLaren's scoring. You know, Metcalf is doing very well. You know, Berenguer as well. So it's good. A-League memes, by the way, victory to make an announcement today. I was foraging about their website, their social media, um, in my inbox for any kind of a statement from them saying that there was an announcement, and I couldn't find anything. So A-League memes... Good on you for having the uh, the inside inside word, in the inside word, and the and the jump on us actual professionals, um, making us look entirely unprofessional. Though I do a good enough job of doing that to myself. Bianca Petko, big shout out to you, World Game Lives, wonderful friend. Hope you and your beautiful family are doing well in Brisbane. Um, I know we have to wrap this show up, but I really want to quickly Stolich, very very quickly touch on Aussies abroad because there's been quite a bit of movement. Chelsea's Sam Kerr, Arsenal's Caitlin. Both on target in their sides wins. Harry Suttard, he scored his first goal for Stoke. Beach and Barillo secure assists. And Langerak, he earned a man of the match uh, title in the J League. Um, but what mm. caught eye the most? It's great to see the Women's Super League back, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, Langerak's an interesting one, isn't he? Because Matt Ryan isn't playing as much as we'd hoped at Arsenal. We kind of hoped that he was going to play in Europa League games. Looks like he's not even playing there. So he played, you know, his one game against uh, Aston Villa, and I thought he did well. But, yeah, I wonder when the Socceroos come back, and we know it looks like they're not going to come back now until June. Yeah. Will Matt Ryan definitely keep that number one spot? Because Mitch Langerak set a record in the J-League for most clean sheets. So I think that, you know, Matt Ryan's kind of been our, you know, I think he's the captain and he's been kind of our number one for so long now since, I guess, the 2014 kind of era. But I think this is the first time where his kind of position has really been in doubt. Um, and it'd be a big call for uh, Graham Arnold to make. I think knowing Arnie, he'll probably stick with Matt Ryan. They obviously have a very good relationship going back to their Central Coast Mariners days. But I think Langrak is at least, you know, asking the question uh, with his performances. I think that's really tough to be in that situation because you'd like to think that it goes on merit and by who's actually mm. getting regular match minutes into their game particularly when it comes to a keeper as well. I think that's hugely important. It's hugely important for every player, but when you consider a keeper and it being such an isolated position to not have that real match game time experience, um, I think is only going to hurt Matty going forward. But, you know, to be exposed to that Arsenal elite environment in the Premier League, of course, is going to do wonders for his further development. And Um, listen... But you're absolutely I mean, right. You're absolutely right. I think Langerak, it would be fair for him to ask the question. It yeah. absolutely would. And also, I just think, you know, I mean, I'm hoping, you know, that uh, Leno gets injured or gets dropped and Matt Ryan starts playing for Arsenal. That that would be absolutely fantastic. I think Matt Ryan is a fantastic goalkeeper and a fantastic ambassador. 
But I just also think you have to give credit to Langrak. One thing we should also touch on, Harry Kuehl, uh, speaking of Aussies abroad, getting sacked at Oldham. That, was my, that, that was my bad news for the week, actually. And yeah. let's, let's use that to segue into this um, final segment of our show. Beautiful little segue from you. They're much better than what I've done today, Stolich. And I want everybody <laughs> to share their bad news and good news with us. Um, we don't have any breaking news, so I'm going to get rid of that banner right then and there. I'm having a stinker today. I might as well sack myself. But bad news slash good news. Tell us what's happened to you in football that's been bad or what you've observed and what's happened or what have you seen that's been good. Stolich, we'll start with you. Go for okay. it. My bad news this week was on Friday night when uh, Muhammad Torre of Adelaide United, young superstar, looked like he pulled his hamstring here. Uh, not great to see. Just, you know, innocuous, just kind of running for the ball, battling with Nikolai Thomas Stanley, pulled up, you know, reached, reached for that hamstring, crying as he came oh, off the field. God. You know, it it didn't look the best. So I really hope that it's not too bad. I really hope that he recovers because, you know, it's always a worry. He's such a fantastic player. He's such a fast player. But we know that for all the talent, for all the ability, your best ability is availability. And if you have injury problems, your career can really be derailed. So I'm really hoping that's not the case. Really hope he recovers well. Really hope Adelaide United give him the best opportunity to do that. But that was my bad news for the week. Hate to see, uh, you know, our young, talented players come through getting injuries. Mm, awful. My bad news, as we touched on there, was obviously the news that Harry Kuehl has been sacked by Oldham. It's a club that have gone through a host of coaches in recent years and a club also that used to experience great success. So to see them going through this, I think, has been particularly difficult for the fans. But the fans did come out and say that he was effectively up against it from day one. We've got an opinion piece from one of our journalists at the World Game, John Durden, effectively saying that it was an almost in inevitable situation that Harry Kuehl would end up being fired by Oldham Athletics sooner rather than later but John is making an argument for Kuehl to return to Australia because that is the ultimate question where to next he's suffered so many brutal sackings he's tried to make it work in the UK Stolich it's not boding well for him. and the more and more he gets sacked the harder and harder it's going to be for him to come back from that and to create any kind of credibility when he goes for his next gig but is there a place for him in Australia and would he want to come back I personally I can't see him wanting to come back and coach in Australia your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, he didn't have the best time when he came back and played here. And then the fact that he kind of moved back to the UK suggests to me that maybe he doesn't want to, you know, live here. I, I don't know what his situation is with his family. Let's get down to brass tacks. We treated him horrendously. And we've treated great players that have come back here, like John Aloisi when he was playing. We've treated our own horrendously. And I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. Um, but, you know, he obviously wasn't at his best either. Uh, you know, as a player, like I like, I think we should just treat the legends as legends. But you know, when it comes to does he have a place here as a coach? You know, I'm looking around the A League, and the A League is small. You know, it's 12 teams, and you look and you go, well, who would he replace? And if you're Melbourne Victory and you have the you know the CVs of Tony Popovich there, like you know, there's rumours that Tony Popovich is being approached, or you have Harry Kuehl. In my opinion, you probably go Popper because at least you know, you know, he's, he's had success in the A League, he's had success in Asia. You know, Harry Kuehl. He's done well as far as we can tell at, you know, Oldham, but we, we don't really know. And Oldham, you know, it's the League Two of England. That was why I was always kind of confused as to why he took that gig. Respect to him for doing it. But it's very hard, you know, to make your way up, you know, with Oldham to the to League One. And then if you do well in League One, you got to the right way, Stolich. This speaks to what you and I were talking about earlier in the day and now even here on the show about the likes of Pirlo, yeah? yeah? A legend of the game being given an opportunity without 
actually having done his time. I think that we have to applaud Harry Kuehl for actually trying to make it work in leagues well below that. And he's a, he was a legend of the game across so many leagues. But for him to be in this scenario, I think, is symptomatic of the way A, football is, B, the clubs that he's chosen to go to, and C, um, I just think that with his experience and what he's gone through, he hasn't been able to go to the next level. So he's yeah. probably kind of stunted in his development as well. But that, that's it. So when it comes to these kind of selections, you know, as a coach, it's actually really important that you choose the right team as well, not just that, you know, you get offered a deal by a team. Because, you know, we look at Popper. Popper now has had two experiences in Europe and, you know, they've both gone wrong pretty quickly. And you got to say, well, you know, how much research was done into the club that you were joining? That's the kind of thing. With, with well, Oldham. He looked at, surely Popper looked at Karabuk Sport, for example, and saw that they were a mess. Well, and but then you have to say, well, I don't want to go to a place that's a mess because the mess can, you know, blow up in your face. With Oldham, for example, with Harry Kill. What do you do then, Stolich? Do you just kind of continue to carve your time here in the A-League? I mean, especially if you've got aspirations to go to Europe. It's easy for us to say in hindsight, oh, you shouldn't have gone there, you shouldn't have gone there when it didn't work out. But can yeah. we really string them up and crucify them for wanting, for wanting to actually succeed in Europe? In my opinion, you know, one of the better, th you know, you look at someone like Pete Klamowski, right? So he was the assistant, obviously, to Ange, and then he got a J-League gig. You know, a J-League gig is very impressive as your first gig, you know, as a senior coach. You know, it didn't work out for Pete. But what I mean with that is, you know, as someone, you know, Ari Brisbane is saying here, should be the soccer's assistant. Harry Kill, you know, Nico Arteta did it with Pep Guardiola. He went under Guardiola for a year or maybe two years, and then he yeah, got the Arsenal gig. Kevin Musker did it with Postacoglu. I know we're talking about yeah. different spectrum here, but it still worked out. I think I think there's a good kind of uh, precedent to be the number two under a very you know smart coach, coach that you can learn kind of from from their success, but also from their mistakes. It's almost like you get a little bit of a trial run at the time just to see how a club works and other things. Then you can kind of you know make your move into that. So I would think yeah, Harry Kill, maybe he's looking at uh, becoming a you know a assistant coach to a to a good team either you know premier league championship somewhere else in europe maybe that level maybe that would be you know very good for him because he's a player you know as a player every player is going to respect him because he's done it you know at the kind of top level at the champions league level at the premier league level so you know, at the world cup level respect only lasts for so long because then it yeah. translates into okay i need to have respect for you as a coach and what you're doing with this tactically and how you're man managing yeah. and how you're doing all the things and the responsibilities that come with being a coach yeah um, I don't, I don't know. I, look, the thing is, if we keep talking about, well, coaches need to say yes to the right opportunities, when is it ever going to be the right opportunity for these coaches who are looking to take that leap from the A-League? Um, yeah. Because we've seen that it doesn't necessarily warrant you great opportunities in Europe. Um, and yeah. if they say no to everything that doesn't look or smell right, then they'll never be able to try and take, you know, their career to the next level. So that there is an element of risk that has to be involved. Mm. But you're right. I think at the same time, you have to also associate that with, well, if things don't go good for me quickly, then they're going to go bad even quicker. Yeah. So it's a really tough scenario to be in. And we wish Harry all the very best. And um, it's time now then to enter into some good news. What have, what have you got in the good news front, Stolich? All right. So one thing that 
I've loved all this season is Alu Kual uh, at the Central Coast Mariners. You know, he's been scoring. He's absolutely become a cult favorite. And so much so that he was warming up. You know, he was on the bench uh, on the game against uh, MacArthur. He was warming up. And the kids on the sideline were warming up with him, running with him. So let's have a look at it right here. So just that, just, just yeah, the kids are just loving him, you know, and that we talk about, you know, Sarah Walsh made a really good point about, you know, having these players stay at the club for a long time and become heroes to the kids. And that's what's happening. You know, if let's see what Alec Wall does, he probably obviously has ambitions to go to Europe, but right now he is an absolute fan favorite at the Central Coast. And, you know, they, those kids are buying tickets. Those kids are getting involved. That's really good for the community. And that's what, you know, each club should really be trying to make the most of, really turn your players into heroes. A-League memes. Good news. Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah is a revelation. Is it? I think it's a revelation for how not to air your dirty laundry out in public, right? That's, That's what Who I cares, think. Lucy? I'm not, who I, cares? Care. I care, right, because I'm neither Team Harry nor Meghan nor the royal family. I'm impartial in all of this, which is, I think, something, a, a great lesson all journalists should take away from this situation is that to side with one or the other is incorrect. You know why? Because there are two sides to every story and we don't know the other side of that story, right? And I don't think we ever will because it concerns the royal family and they're entitled to their privacy. But every family that goes through any kind of struggles are entitled to their privacy. There I said it. Um, good <laughs> what do you said it? What, what are we even talking about? It's not a revelation. It's not, and by the way, A-League memes, I said, what are your observations of either good news or bad news in football? I didn't say anything yeah. about the whole family fiasco. Good news. Alu's jersey also broke the auction record selling for $2,750. Guys, that is sensational news. Love that. Love following the auction. Love seeing people kind of getting into a bidding war over it. Really great work and I think a fantastic cause, you know, Everything that's going on up at the Central Coast right now is such a positive good news story. It's a great news story for Stadge and his entire team, but more specifically the community who have stood by this football club for so long through so many barren years. Um, and, and we've got a great um, story up actually by one of our journalists, Phil Mikalev, saying that effectively uh, the Central Coast situation is a really good news story for the, um, the whole community over there. So go and check that one out. Uh, my good news actually happens to be about this historic and sensational Women's Super League broadcast deal that was struck in the UK now. So it's going to actually be shown the Women's Super League on free to wear, which is just remarkable news. And it's actually the first time that the Women's Super League attracted a rights fee. So that is huge in women's sport, huge for our players over there, our Australian based players, but huge for women's football in general, because I think we're starting to see some great strides in that space. Stolich, we have gibbered for well over an hour and a half. And so much of that has had to do with the fact that we've had sensational guests which has chewed into our ability to chat about what's going on in world football but we want yeah. to make a, a really big shout out and a special thanks to Newcastle Jets attacking midfielder Liridon Krasnice who will hopefully make his debut for the club in the coming weeks. Uh, he was great to catch up with and addressed a, a few of his rumours concerning Larsa Pippen, the friend of Kim Kardashian, not that that's football related but we always love to have a bit of scandal. Big thanks also to Richard Wilson, former Melbourne Victory board member who came out and gave us some clarity and insight into just why the club has started to, to really experience these barren and lean years uh, and also 
also gave us some information on how you can participate in becoming a shareholder as well. And big shout out to Sarah Walsh, Head of Women's Football, Women's World Cup Legacy and Inclusion over at Football Australia for joining us. Of course, for a lot of the stories that we have discussed and we haven't had time to get into today, you can head to the World Game website to get more information on those and do one-stop shop for opinion pieces and the latest news in both domestic and global football. Stolich, uh, any predictions for the Champions League tomorrow, given that you are our resident apologist? Can you turn this shit stink around? PSG zero, Barca four. We're going to yeah, do it. Laporta <laughs> is back, baby. The revolution is happening. Neymar's injured. All Everything, all the fate is pointing towards a Barca victory. So come on, Barca. We can do it. We are going to do it tomorrow. 4-0 Barca. Messi, 2. Dembele, 1. Piquet, 1. I'm going to cut this clip up and I'm going to post it up tomorrow to haunt you when the result is the exact opposite. All right, son, you've made some bold, bold statements here. Um, Bad news from Jill Delaney, one of our regular viewers here on the World Game Live. Couldn't agree with you more. Bad news, new handball rules look like we need armless players. She's corrected herself, armless players. Couldn't agree more. Uh, IFAB, get your absolute shit together. You guys are in an absolute shambles right now. Nobody understands the handball rules at the moment. And I know that Arsene Wenger is also weighing in on this and trying to correct the offside decision as well. But um, too many changes in the in the world of football, especially when it comes to the rules. Let's just keep it basic, keep it normal. But thanks for your comment. Jill, thanks for everybody who's tuned in today. It's been a massive program. Right, we love engaging with you. Um, for all comments. of our viewers, fabulous comments. Um, please come back to us next Wednesday from 1pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time. We look forward to catching up with you then. But on behalf of myself, Solich, and the entire team at the World Games, goodbye for now. Enjoy the rest of your week and have a safe and happy weekend. Ciao. Visca Basa.